Thank you. It's uh, good to be with you this morning and uh, it seems like uh, we get these batches where you see the same face over and over again for a while. So I just need to get a cloth out my glasses bag because I can't see a thing through my glasses. That's good. Um, I, I don't know about you, but I really feel so proud to be part of a church where so many people do so much. And, uh, and just having Sarah as a colleague is just a real blessing. And as Doreen said, you know, she looks after prayer, she looks after our family, she does an incredibly difficult job and uh, works all the shifts and uh, just have her as part of our family is amazing. And other people, thank you Lex for um, praying with us today, but Lex actually has been at church putting a roof tile on during the week at the chapel just to stop the rain getting in, causing any damage. So I just saw, you know, people turn up to do the tea and coffee and do the band. We're just so privileged so we pat each other on the back and just give each other a praise and well done, everybody. It's just a privilege and makes life so good. I'm sure you'll love, you'll love each other more than that, but that's great. Thank you. I wonder if you've ever heard the phrase or said the phrase, always a bridesmaid, never a bride, right? And that doesn't just apply perhaps to those of you who have had the privilege in your lives to be a bridesmaid. I'm guessing that's just the men. <laughs> no, just the women. Uh, although these days you just never know, do you? Um, we, uh, we, we have that phrase, but actually the phrase doesn't just apply to sort of bridesmaids at weddings. It applies to our lives as well, where we might have had a job and we thought, you know, I'm the best person to get that promotion. And then when it's announced that you haven't got the job, you think, how much longer am I going to stick in this role when I really should be moving up? Always a bridesmaid, never a bride. Max Lucado tells a story from ages past. It's quite a hard story to understand, but we're going to try and unpack it. About a stately prince and a peasant girl who fall in love. The story is difficult to understand. On the one hand is a prince who literally has the world at his disposal. There's never been a more perfect specimen of a man that ever lived. Nothing about him was common. You wouldn't be exaggerating to say that he is a perfect catch. On the other hand, there's a peasant girl. She's nothing more than average. Now please, this is a story this is not my words. At her very best, she is plain. There are times when she's cranky and moody, and she rarely ever achieves all she could. To look at her from anybody else's eyes, you would never believe that she was worth very much. But if you could see her through the eyes of the prince, you would believe that she was to die for. Because the prince determined that he couldn't bear to live without her, he asked her to be his bride. She accepted his proposal. The prince promised the bride that he would come back for her soon. And the peasant girl turned princess pledged to be faithfully awaiting his return. Now to this point, the story would, could be any number of fairy tales I read Rapunzel to Pippa the other day. It's a frightening story, Rapunzel, isn't it? 
But now the plot takes a bizarre twist. It expects the bride to be always thinking about the coming wedding, but she rarely ever mentions it. You would think that every waking moment would be lived out in anticipation and preparation for the coming of a prince. However, by the way she lives, you wouldn't even know that she's the bride of a perfect prince. More frequently than not, you can't even tell the difference between the bride and any of the other peasant girls in the village. There are even times when she can be seen flirting with other men in the village while in broad daylight. And who knows what she is doing when nobody is around to see. Can you imagine a peasant girl fortunate enough to be the object of a perfect prince's eternal love? You would expect her to be captivated by his love and fulfilled with a sense of wonder that she was fortunate enough to be loved by him. You would think that she would be careful to remain pure in anticipation of the return of her royal groom. Instead, to look at her, you might wonder if she even remembers that she's engaged at all. How could a peasant forget about her prince? Is it possible for a bride to forget her groom? Now that's a good question, but only we are able to answer it. You see, the story of the prince and the peasant bride is not a fairy tale or some medieval fame, fable. It isn't a story of anything else at all, but rather a story about us, you and me, the church. We are the ones that the Bible calls the bride of Christ. And to be quite honest, far too often observers might ask if we've forgotten about the groom we are betrothed to. Last week, Corinne challenged us to look at how we care for each other, asked us to go home and do some reading. How many of you said, honestly say, you've gone home and done the, read the chapters, she said. I'm not asking to embarrass yourself, but we were encouraged to read some chapters about caring for each other in the church. We're the ones the Bible calls the Bride of Christ. Last week, when we read it, we were encouraged how we reacted, how we care for each other. Now, one of the most prominent images, and one that is filled with meaning, is the concept of the church is Christ's bride. It's an image that is woven through the entire Bible, and yet we don't hear many sermons about it, do we? As Doreen said. In Isaiah 62, verse 5, it says, God speaks through the prophet. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. And in the book of Hosea, God commands the prophet to marry a woman who is adulterous, even though she's unfaithful and leaves her husband. God commands Hosea to purchase her back from the slave market as a parable of God's love for his people. It's not an act of empty symbolism. In Hosea 2, God promises his people, I will make you my wife forever. That's what God says to his people. I will make you my wife forever, showing you righteousness and justice, 
unfailing love and compassion, I will be faithful to you and make you mine, and you will finally know me as Lord. Now, in order to understand all this imagery, you must understand what a Jewish wedding was like. There was an initial engagement of what was called a betrothal. You remember Mary and Joseph were betrothed to each other. Often marriages were arranged by a family of the man and woman. After the betrothal took place, the couple were considered husband and wife, but they still remained apart. It seems alien to us, doesn't it? That? But they still remained apart. Then at an unknown time, the groom would return to claim his bride. At that time, there would be a wedding feast and the formal uniting of the couple, and they would live together and begin their life as a family. During the betrothal period, both the groom and the bride-to-be were supposed to remain faithful to their betrothed. As you can imagine, the time leading up to the wedding was filled with anticipation and excitement as the couple prepared for their union. The understanding is particularly important when you come to the New Testament. There are several places where the imagery of the wedding between Christ and the church pops up. Now as Paul tries to persuade the church in Corinth not to be unfaithful to God, he writes in 2 Corinthians, I am jealous with sorry, I am jealous for you with the jealousy of God himself, for I promised you as a pure bride to one husband, Christ. So God promised us to Christ as a church that we would be his bride. And I know all this imagery is a bit hard to get to understand, but that's what he promised. In the fifth chapter of Ephesians, Paul gives instructions about how a husband and wife are to relate to one another. He challenges Christian couples to live in such a way that wife that the wife respects and submits to her husband. And the husband is to love the wife as Christ loved the church. As a matter of fact, several times in Ephesians, Paul relates the relationship between husband and wife, between Christ and the church. Here's a portion of scripture we often hear read out at weddings, okay? Some people don't like it. Here we go. Ephesians 5. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife as Christ is head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should, should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word and to present her him to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or, or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wives, he who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does for the church, 
for you are members of their body. Just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body, sorry. For at this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, sometimes we get bogged down with that word submit in there, and people look at the, it's like Paul being quite uh, legalistic about how a man and wife live. But actually, when you read the text, what he's saying is, he's given an example of how Christ loves the church, which is us, the bride of Christ, how he loves us, and we as husbands and wives should love each other in the same way. That's the illustration he's trying to make in that portion of scripture. So just as Christ loves the church, we are to love our husbands and wives, love our husbands and wives and vice versa in the same way. There's one prominent place where God describes the church as the bride of Christ, and that's in Revelation. John describes a vision that God laid before him. It's a picture of the bridegroom coming to claim the one betrothed to him. And these are the words in in, in Revelation 19, verse 6. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. All sorts of things tick through your head there, don't they? The bride, if we the bride, made ourselves ready for when God, when Jesus comes again. Fine linen, bright and clean, were given to wear. Fine living, living standing for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. Now, honestly, all week I've sort of pondered over this and thought, What do I relate to? The bride of Christ. How? How do I relate to that as a person, the bride of Christ? How do I relate to that as a male? You know, males, the male image, the bride of Christ is a female image, isn't it? Without a doubt. And yet we're talked about in the church as being part of the bride of Christ. I've never been a bride, needless to say. I never wanted to be a bride. And I don't think I look very good in white lace. And the whole garter thing freaks me out altogether. There's a gender gap issue here, isn't there? And I think the reality is women can relate to the idea of anticipating a wedding more than men do. That's a general statement, isn't it? A broad statement. I've, un- I've participated in quite a lot of weddings. And it's rare that the groom is as excited as the bride It's about all the ruffles and frills. However, the look on the groom's face when he turns to look at his bride coming down the aisle is always something to watch in a wedding, isn't it? 
Always something to behold when he sees his bride coming down the aisle, dressed in her splendor. Most cases, I've been to a few weddings where I wasn't so sure about the, the dress, but never mind. Usually the bride is really like, wow, and just lost in that love and anticipation of the bride. But once you get past the whole gender thing, you realize what God's talking about. He's talking about intimate relationship. Christ uses this image to imagery to describe the relationship with the church because he wants you and I to realize how deeply he loves us, how deeply he cares about us. And he calls us to a lifetime of growing closer to him. It's true to say that Christ has fallen head over heels in love with us. It's hard to imagine why Christ's fallen in love with me, I don't know. When Jesus says that our love is to die for, he meant it literally. It must have been love that led Jesus to spread his hands out to allow nails to be driven through his wrists and feet as the crown of thorns was wedged on his head as each breath became shallower as he hung on the cross the son of God could have ended the drama of his crucifixion at any time he wanted but if he had the wedding would have been off there would have been no wedding between the church of God the bride of Christ and the saviour of the world. Both the prince and the peasant girl aren't worthy to wear the white garment of righteousness on their own. Isaiah says that all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. If it all depended on us, there'd be no wedding. But Jesus couldn't bear to spend eternity without us. We sing that song, don't we? He couldn't take eternity without us. He longs to live our eternity, out eternity, with his betrothed, you and I, the church. So with his blood, he purchased a garment of righteousness worthy of a royal wedding. Isaiah 61 says, I delight greatly in the Lord, my soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed, and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom adores his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Now I have to tell you that given who we are and the way we sometimes behave, I can't imagine why a perfect prince would want us as a bride. Would you agree with that? Yeah? The church is far from perfect. We are often cranky. I'm not looking at anybody in particular. Look at myself if I had a mirror. And cantankerous. We rarely, if ever, live up to God, to our God-given potential. There are times when our faithfulness wears pretty thin and our eyes wander. Sometimes our hearts get sidetracked and we let things like material possessions and power 
and prestige become more important in our lives than the bridegroom who loves us more than life itself. I shake my head as I ponder this never-ending love for us. One thing I've noticed that about couples who are engaged to be married, they become obsessed with preparation. Would you agree with that, Adrian and Amy? Yeah. <laughs> they want to make sure that everything is right. The dress, the occasion, the suits, the weight, the hair, it all needs to be just right. Now, why is that? Is that their, so that their fiancé Fiance, fiance. Start again. Is that so their fiance will want to marry them? No, just the opposite. They want to look their best because their fiance is going to marry them. The same is true for us. We want to look our best for Christ. We want our hearts to be pure, our thoughts to be clean. We want our lives to be marked with grace and love. We want to be prepared for his coming. It's not so that he will love us. He's already proven his love for us on the cross. We want to be pure and spotless because he loves us. Not because it will make him love us more. He couldn't love us any more than he already does and has proven to each one of us. We could, how could we ever be unfaithful to the one who loves us so much? Why would we contend ourselves with one-night stands that the world offers when we can know the fulfillment and depth of an eternal relationship with the God of the universe? And I just want to leave those thoughts with you this morning. Are you living every day in preparation for the time when you are united with Christ in heaven? Jesus is doing that already for you. In John 14, those familiar verses, Jesus said, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I will come back and take you to be with me. And you also may be where I am. So Jesus is spending time in preparation for the wedding day when we go to meet him and be with him. He will come back and claim his bride. He is preparing that place. Now the question that every one of us must answer is, what am I doing to prepare myself for his return? And so just in a very short way, last week Corinne told us how we, should be encouraged us to think how we should be living together and encouraging one another. And I think this morning's message is how should we, how do we get closer in relationship to the Lord Jesus? How do we do that? Lex talked about prayer and it was really good, helpful talk, Lex. Thank you. Um, but the essence is do we have such a relationship with Jesus that we don't need to use fancy words? We don't need to. Yes, it's nice to use scripture. That's really good. But can we not just have a conversation with somebody we love? If we're really intimate with someone, we can just have an easy conversation, can't we? They know our hearts. They're not looking for fancy words. Jesus isn't looking for fancy words. 
He just wants us to be honest with you. I love you, Lord. Thank you for what you've done for me. Thank you, Lord. Help me get through today. Lord, just be with me. Lord, I just want to just thank you for what you've done on the cross for us. Lord, I look forward to the day when you take me to be with you in heaven. It doesn't need to be complicated, does it? It just needs genuine, open honesty in relationship we can have. And that's what Jesus yearns for in our hearts. He just learns for an intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm just going to pray now. I'm just going to ask, we sing that song, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. I just pray that he'll just speak to each one of us now and be really, that Jesus wants to be intimate with you. I pray that he will be now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your intimacy bears no limit that you care for each other. You could love us no more and no less than what you do already. You love us with a passion. You love us with such a desire that you were willing to give your own life. And I pray, Lord, that each one of us in the coming days will just be drawn closer to you as the bride of Christ. We will just know you as our bridegroom. We'll know you as our saviour. We'll know you as our Lord. I pray a blessing on each one here, Lord. Will you just close that gap between us and yourself as individuals, Lord. Bless each one. And one day, Lord, we look to rejoice with you at the wedding feast that is prepared for us in heaven. Bless each one of us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Chris.